Amen. Have a seat. It's great to see you tonight. We are in our second of a four-part series on um, things that I want to talk about, I think is what we're calling this. Uh, <laughs> last week was uh, Christian nationalism. I hope that was helpful. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about men and women, their roles in the home and church. Next week is going to be spiritual warfare, uh, which I uh, have always been just interested in, and I, and I want to, uh, we've talked about it before over the years, but I think it'd be good for a little rehash on that, and then finally, we're going to talk about God's providence uh, on the final week, and his role in suffering, and evil, and sin, and how do these things mix together, but today, we're going to jump right in. We're going to look at men and women in the church, and in the home, and what their roles are, and again, I want to uh, say that we're going to do a bit of a flyover, and so um, I think if you've been hanging around Crosspoint, none of these things that I'll say today will be or tonight will be in, in new to you, but I think it's good for us to have sort of a rehash, uh, to go back over truths. Uh, Paul says, I think in Philippians, that it's not tedious of him to repeat things, and so I think it's good for us to be reminded. But I do want to hopefully keep a brisk pace going so that we have time for questions. I love doing Q&A, and I think I learn from you, and hopefully you learn from me, and I think it's just helpful for the church. So let's just work our way through this outline. I want to start by talking about some foundational truths about men and women. Now, the first thing that I want to say is just kind of a broad point. I want us to, and I think hopefully, again, if you're from Crosspoint or if you're new to Crosspoint, that this concept will not be new to you, but we are people that believe in the authority of the Bible. We believe, and this is going to be really important as we get into some issues about roles in the church and even in society, that there is always a a, 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 speaking of spiritual warfare, there's always warfare going on in the church, whether it was in the garden with Adam and Eve and the serpent trying to tempt Eve and Adam to disbelieve what God said, or even in our day, whether or not what the Bible has said thousands of years ago is relevant for our age. We want to be people that think wisely about the Bible, and, but remember that the Bible is our authority. But having said that, there's something that sometimes we don't mention as much as we should that I want to mention tonight is not only is the Bible authoritative, but the Bible is clear. I want you to, I want you to have this confidence. I think sometimes uh, there can be a way of preaching or teaching or there can be a way of holding the Bible in such high esteem in a church culture that it almost puts the cookies on the top shelf. And it seems like only a certain amount of people can really understand the deep things of the Bible. Now, unmistakably, certainly, there are parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand. In fact, Peter says that about Paul at the end of his second letter. He says, that, well, there's some things that Paul's written that are hard to understand. But in the first part of that letter, he says that God has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness. And so while there are certainly aspects of doctrine that uh, we can kind of run to the end of the road, and then we just there's there's a kind of mystery in the deep things of God that we can't quite piece together this side of eternity. Everything we need for life and godliness, and certainly the implications about what it means to be human, what it means to be man and woman together in the home and in the church, are clear to us. It's attainable. There are good people, Bible-believing Christians, that may disagree with some of the things that I say to tonight, but I, I want to say that I think the, the perspective that we have at this church is clear. We can work out some differences and, and the margins, but I think we're well within clarity here. So with that, let's just kind of look at some foundational truths in the Bible. 
The first thing that I think we just need to remind ourselves always when we're talking about men and women is that men and women are co-image bearers of God. We bear God's image together. Men are not better than women or more valuable than women. And likewise, men are not more valuable than men. And any sort of theology or any living out of a good theology that somehow suppresses one gender under the other in some unseen, even in imperceptible, but ways that are felt by everybody is a misapplication of this truth. So where do we get this from? Well, Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27. We'll have it on the screen, I think. Um, Maybe. Yep, there it is. We're going to fly through some scriptures here. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them. So there's this implication of the plurality of mankind there. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And what I think is implied there in verse 27 is mankind. In the image of God, he created them, him, male and female, he created them. So men and women both equally bear the image of God. And then something else that I want us to see that is going to become important later on in hopefully discussion and some points that I want to make is that there is clearly a complementary design between men and women. And we see this even echoed in the early parts of the first two chapters of Genesis. I won't take the time to read Genesis 1 and 2, but you do see even in the order of creation that there's the, the, the land and then the sea, the night and then the day, the, the greater uh, star by to, to rule the day and the lesser by the night. So there's this complementary design, even in the order of creation, things go together. Land and sea go together in a complementary way. Night and darkness go together in a complementary way. And likewise, as the pinnacle of God's creation, man and woman go together in a complementary way. And so men and women are to complement one another. Sometimes you might hear this phrase, and this is a particular theological perspective or stream that we find ourselves in, that we are complementary in our doctrine of men and women. It means that we believe that men and women are co-image bearers, is equal in value and essence before the Lord, but different and complementary in their design and their role. So uh, that, that's an important thing for you to understand, the complementary nature of creation and even, most specifically, men and women. Then in Galatians chapter 3, this wonderful verse that I think just speaks to, the again, the co-image bearers of men and women. Galatians 3, verse 27, for as many as you were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So there's this oneness of of image bearing and glory imaging in all humanity uh, that are in Christ, whether men or women or regardless of their ethnicity. Now, it's important because we may get to this later. This verse is not erasing the distinctions in the roles between men and women, but it is setting men and women along with every other tribe and tongue, no differences in people or, or, or genders as far as their value before the Lord. So it's not erasing our maleness and our femaleness. It's not erasing our, our ethnic identity, but it is saying that one is not better than the other. We are one in Christ. So we're co-image bearers. 
Then, uh, again, I'm going to breeze through these really important uh, verses here, and I just want to make the point as I read some of these verses about the differing roles in marriage and then the roles in the church, rather than deep diving and speaking specifically on each of these verses, because each of these passages could be a kind of sermon series or a sermon in and of itself, I want to give you a broad brush. I want you to read the Bible as if the Bible is clear and it makes sense and there's a kind of obviousness to what the Bible is saying. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, the most extended passage in the Bible on marriage and the relationship between a man and a woman. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So Paul is drawing a parallel here, and this is clear. He's saying that there is a re- an earthly relationship which is a temporary shadow of a heavenly reality, that the There is a heavenly groom, it's Christ, and there is an earthly bride, it's the church, and there's a relationship there. And the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage is meant to reflect that. It's meant to be a kind of shadow of that. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ says the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one, of you, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So again, I want, you to, I want you to sort of zoom out from any theological or cultural angst against this passage or this idea of male headship or female submission, and I want you to just take in the tenor of that passage as just an ordinary Christian who is encountering Ephesians 5 for the first time, the the point of the passage seems rather clear and obvious, that that there's a a shadow in the relationship between men and women in the home, and it's meant to be a kind of mirror, a temporary, albeit imperfect, mirror of the gospel itself, the relationship between Jesus and his bride, and the men are to lead, and the wife are to posture themselves in a kind of biblical submission, and the men are not to, you know, pound their chest and, and, and subjugate the women, but they are to love, serve, and care for, and sacrifice, and, 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 and honor the woman. I mean, come on, let's just step back. Isn't this beautiful? I mean, who doesn't want this? Who, who doesn't want this? This is a wonderful thing. This is a good thing for women, and it is a great responsibility for men. Uh, another passage, 1 Corinthians 2, that's just, again, zoom out of any particular controversies that you may feel or angst that you might, or baggage that we might bring in culturally, and just take in the, the, the beauty of the passage. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. The Corinthian church was a mess. I'm always strangely encouraged by that because God works with messy churches. And they were, one of the things that was going on in the Corinthian church, uh, 
aside from the fact that they were really proud about their spiritual gifts and they were into all sorts of debauchery, one of the things that's laying behind 1 Corinthians 11 is that the church in Corinth had what would be called an over-realized eschatology. In other words, the people in Corinth were trying to erase the earthly distinctions, at least some of them. I think that's what Paul's addressing in 1 Corinthians 11. They were trying to erase the earthly distinctions between man and woman and looking forward to heaven and uh, thinking about kind of life as angels. They were so spiritual, they were sort of so heavenly that there was this teaching that was going on in the Corinthian church that kind of erasing the differences between men and women. Kind of like it's sort of, it's sort of a bad application of Jesus' words in Matthew 22, I think, where he says that, that in heaven, we're neither given uh, to marriage when he's, when he's talking about the, the, the resurrection. We're going to be like the angels in that sense. And what was happening likely in the Corinthian church is that in their super spirituality, they were saying, oh, well, really, there's no differences between men and women, okay? And that was causing some of the women to abandon this cultural uh, a standard or practice of having a head covering, which in that context showed their submission to their husbands, okay? That's what's going on. And Paul says, he's, he's speaking against that practice. And he says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, let me just pause there. Again, I want you to just take in the beauty of that. I love having Jesus as my head because he is a wonderful captain. He is a wonderful head. And so this, if, if a man reads this and he says, I am your head, he's missing the heart of Christ. So this is a beautiful text. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covering dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I think that, verse 10, is a reference to you're, you're, you're wanting to be like the angels. But nevertheless, verse 11, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. And so, again, I want you to just take back the beauty. Now, I, you're like, whoa, Brad, whoa, there's lots going on there. Can you, can you talk about that? Well, we don't have eight hours to break down all of those ten verses. Uh, but I just wanna, I want you to step back and see that there is this kind of protection and this order and this glory and this headship, which is good for all of God's people, both men and women. And it's a beautiful thing. And then uh, I, let's keep going. One last verse in the role of marriage, 1 Peter 3. The context in 1 Peter 3 is uh, likely the gospel has come to these cities that Peter is writing this letter to. 1 Peter is written to be a letter dispersed to a whole broad area of scattered Christians. The situation is likely that there were two Gentile or pagan uh, a marriage, and the gospel has come to them, and the wife has accepted Christ, and now she's married to an unbeliever. How should she... Uh, 
comport herself in this marriage when her husband is not a believer. And this is what Peter says. And again, I just want you, again, there's so much in this, but I just want you to get the whoop and the wharf, the general tenor of the beauty that God has of the design in marriage. And he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Listen to verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, lowercase l, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Let me pause there and say what a beautiful exhortation to women who have to, in fact, every woman in this room has to follow, even if your husband's a believer, praise God, even if your husband is a believer, you're going to follow a man who is imperfectly leading you. And just like Sarah obeyed Abraham and followed him in Genesis, even in his folly at times, twice being willing to sell her out to some pagan king because she was pretty and he was scared that they were going to kill him for her. She's still following him. And this picture of what it means to be strong as a woman is that according to God's design, God has this beautiful design in marriage where the women are to posture themselves in a kind of appropriate submission to the man, even in his imperfection. And what's that doing? It's honoring the Lord because it's keeping intact God's design, which is a picture of the gospel that we read about in Ephesians chapter 5. And so, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing this because oftentimes the word submission in our culture, even in Christian circles, is presented as a bygone word, a, 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 a Promote, uh, an old word, and it, and it carries with it the connotation of weakness in women. But Sarah was not weak. Sarah was actually a picture of great feminine strength because she knew that in following this bumbling guy, Abraham, she was ultimately showing great courage in following the Lord. I would submit it takes much more strength to follow somebody who you sometimes are wondering what they're doing because you know this is God's design than branching out on your own. And Sarah is a wonderful example of female, fierce, feminine strength. And then, verse 7, likewise, this is important. Boy, verse 7, verse 7. Jim Money told me this morning that that verse that we looked at this Sunday, Mark 9, Verse 24, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And we were talking about how verse, that, verse has a lot, that, that verse has got a lot in it. Well, verse 7 has a lot in it. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That's worth memorizing. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Man, there's just so much. When a man reads that, you know what you shouldn't do? You shouldn't say, if, if your first instinct is, yeah, women are complicated. Yeah, you're right. We know. <laughs> no, no, don't, don't. That's, that's a whack attitude. No, it means you, you've, we've got a real mission to care for God's daughters and lead them and love them in a way as they have to posture themselves towards us in humility to follow our imperfection that we are to strive 
to bring to bear God's, Christ's courage and kindness and compassion in that marriage. Oh man, live with your wives in an understanding way is a, it's, 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 it's a mountain of biblical application for a man. Showing honor to the woman is the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. One last comment on that little verse there. What, is, what does weaker vessel mean? I, 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 again, I, I, think, I just think we should sort of step back and I think generally we should believe that scripture's clear and I don't think this is talking about any sort of um, spiritual weakness. Uh, I think it just means that generally men are physically stronger than women and so men, you should be protectors and you should care for women. That doesn't mean that there aren't some women in the world who can beat up men. Obviously, there are. Uh, I'm just saying that generally, this is the case. The exception does not disprove the rule. I think the exception actually proves the rule. Generally, men are stronger, and so you should live with her. You should show her honor. You should protect her. So those are just kind of zoom out. Roles in marriage. Okay, roles in the church. Roles in the church. Um, let me go to Titus chapter 2. I think it's just like a general picture. Again, just a general picture. Just read Titus 2, and you just get a general picture that the men are to, uh, older men are to care for and teach younger men, and older women are to care for and teach younger women. That's just clear and obvious. Verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is Paul talking to Titus, a young pastor. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much, to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So I think there's just a general picture that there should be gender-on-gender gender discipleship in the church. I think that's clear and obvious. Now then, more specifically about offices in the church, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3. And these are, are, are controversial verses, uh, but I think they're clear. Paul is going to be addressing here in 1 Tim Timothy 2, uh, gathered worship. I think that's the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And this is where we get our stance here at Crosspoint, which I'll explain in more detail in just a moment, why we think women should not serve in the role of pastor, elder, overseer. And I'm using those three words interchangeable as all referring different words to describe one role in the church. And this is what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I desire then that in every place, verse 8, men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but that which is what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Okay, now, now it's starting to, get, starting to get a little thick. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, again, we could spend a lot of time sort of exegeting that verse. I have done that before. Um, we can talk more in depth about it. But let me just kind of zoom out and broadly explain to you what I think, especially verses 11 and 12 and 13 are saying, which are really, the I think, the, the critical verses for our discussion tonight. 
Verse 11 says, let a woman learn quietly without submissiveness, or with all submissiveness. Um, uh, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. So does that mean that it is inappropriate for a woman to speak at all in church? Well, no, because remember we just read in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul is actually encouraging women to speak, to pray in the church, uh, but in a way that uh, respects the, her, her, her husband and respects the authority of the church. So if he's not saying that she should remain totally quiet, he does clearly, though, prohibit some sort of speech. What type of speech is that? Verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And if we took the time, and which we will in just a minute, to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is the next few verses after that, Paul is going to talk about what elders, pastors, overseers do, and their primary task in the church is to lead, oversee, govern, shepherd the church by teaching the church. So the primary role that distinguishes elders from others is that their role is bound up in their function, which is teaching the word of God and exercising authority. And the type of speech that Paul is prohibiting women to have in the church here is that type of speech, speech that exercises authority over the church. And Paul says a woman is not to participate in that type of speech. Now, let me pause here, and let me say that all Christians believe that that's what the Bible says, because I just read it to you, that's what the Bible says. But there are two different camps, okay? There is the complementarian view, which is ours, which I'll explain to you in a second. Complementary, meaning men and women are equal in value in essence, but different in role and function. Within that stream of the church, they would hold like we do that, men, that women should not be teaching pastors, elders, overseers in the church, okay? That's, the other view would be what's called egalitarianism, egal coming from the Latin word meaning equal, which would mean that women and that, that, that there's no distinct, women can hold any role in the church, also pastor, elder, overseer. And they would say, so, so you might say, well, what's their argument? Because everybody reads verse 11 and verse 12, and it says, I don't permit a woman to teach, or to exercise authority over a man, rather she's to remain quiet. So you might say, follow my logic here, you might say, well, how do the egalitarians who believe that women can teach and exercise authority over men in the church, where do they get their stance from? Because verse 12 clearly says that they can't. So where, do they, where are they getting that from? Well, here's how their argument goes. Primarily, there's a, several arguments, but this is the primary one. They would say, that the women in Ephesus, where Timothy is pastoring, were uneducated like most of the women in the first century. And uh, so therefore, Paul, it is a merely a cultural, bound only to the situation and the context in Ephesus, because these particular women were uneducated. Another argument is, is that the women in Ephesus came out of particularly sinful, pagan, idolatrous backgrounds. And so this particular lot of women in Ephesus are the ones that Paul is saying shouldn't teach and exercise authority because of their lack of education, their lack of doctrinal knowledge, and their, their past. And so the, the admonition or the restriction is limited in application to Ephesus. Do you follow the argument? Okay, that's the argument. The problem with that and where 
I think I would, and people in the complementarian camp would disagree with that, is verse 13. Because Paul says in verse 13, he says, okay, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. He doesn't say, because these women in Ephesus are a particularly unqualified bunch. No, he, in verse 13, goes to the pre-fall. He's rooting the logic of his prohibition. He's rooting the logic of his restriction in verse 12 to the pre-fall, pre-sin, order of creation in verse 13. Why shouldn't women hold this one particular role in the church? Why? Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. He's going back to this complementary design and the difference in roles. Not difference in image bearing, not difference in glory, not difference in importance, difference in roles. And so, that, I think, is the primary reason why churches like us, through the centuries, have believed that this office of pastor-elder is restricted to men. Uh, now let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, though. What about deacons, okay? So let me just read 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, just as a background, and then get into verses 8 through 13. I'll read it quick. This is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and again, I think the word overseer is interchangeable with the word elder and pastor, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So that's distinguishing an elder from other, just everybody in the church who's a mature Christian, every other men in the church who are mature Christians. He's able to teach. He's not a drunkard. He's not violent, but gentle. He's not quarrelsome. He's not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Okay, that's Paul's explanation of the qualification of elders. Now, deacons. What about deacons? We believe that women can be deacons. And again, this is controversial even within the complementarian camp. Some people differ from what I'm about to say. But I do believe that women can serve as deacons. And this is what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. He says, deacons, and this word deacons is diakonos, means servant, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them, also, let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Verse 11. Verse 11 is really important. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so where in there do you get female deacons? Well, look again at verse 11. Verse 11 says their wives. Now, this is the ESV translation of the Greek word gaikonos. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that word could mean wives or uh, women in general, and the, I think, more conservative translators of the ESV version chose to make it wives, and they insert the word there. They're, in the original text, there is no word there, 
So they're making a decision there. They're saying that these are the wives of deacons. That could be the case. But I think it is probably also a decent translation to just say women, likewise, the inference then in verse 11 would be women who are deacons must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So I think that for three reasons. One, because of what I just said, that Greek word can be either women or wives, and the translators of this particular English version decided to go a little bit more conservative and uncontroversial and insert the English translation there, choosing to make it wives, making that word the wives of deacons, when it could just be more generally women. That's that's, uh, reason number one. I think that opens up the possibility that he's speaking about women who are deacons. The second reason is in verse 11, you see the word likewise, which is also said in verse 8. He says deacons likewise or likewise deacons. He uses that same word when he's introducing a new role or new office. Likewise, deacons, implication who are men, must be dignified. And then verse 11, the same grammatical structure. Likewise, women or women who are deacons must be dignified. So he's transitioning in his mind and he's introducing, likewise, the women who are deacons. Um, and then the third reason that I think is likely that, he, that, that verse 11 is speaking about female deacons is that it would be odd... It just seems odd that Paul would give uh, instruction about the comportment of deacons' wives when he doesn't give any instruction about the comportment of elders' wives, who you would think would, in a sense, be more critical in the life of the church as far as commending the teaching ministry of their husband. So those three reasons, I think, leave open the possibility that verse 11 is speaking about women deacons. And then also Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. If you could put it up on the screen, I'll just read it. Uh, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant. That word servant is diakonos. It's other places translated deacon. A servant of the church at Chintria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So I think... Uh, in fact, older translations, you just uh, they, they translate that word deaconess, that Phoebe is a deaconess. Uh, it says that every other time that the word diakonos is translated servant in the New Testament, it says servant of the Lord. But here, Phoebe's called a servant or deaconess of the church, which I think implies that she had a particular diaconate or deaconess role in the church. And then Paul is saying, I'm sending her to you. So I think the implication there is that she's on some official business for the church. So I think Phoebe is a deaconess, which I think comports well with the particular view of verse 11 back in 1 Timothy 3 that that he's speaking about female deacons. So while I do not think that women should be elders, pastors, overseers, I do think that women should be deacons. We don't currently have any female deacons in the church, but we'll get to that here in just a second. Okay, let me keep clipping along, and then I want to get to questions and answers. Some general pastoral reflections. Okay, so we just talked about roles in marriage, roles in the church, and just this general idea of the equality of men and women before God, but differing roles. In general, I think there is growing confusion and insecurity in the church about just these truths, about what it means to be man and woman. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, and because our culture is, is, is growing more and more opposed to this, and because I think we have a history in large swaths of the American church to, be, to care more about 
just life help leadership techniques and church growth techniques, we've watered down the clear teaching of difficult passages in the Bible like this that clearly seem to go against the culture, and so we've minimized them, and what it has done is for, not in churches like Crosspoint, praise God, hopefully, and that will be the case for many years going forward, but in broad swaths of American evangelicalism, we haven't taught on these things, and it's produced generations of Christians who are averse to any teaching in the Bible that seems to put them at odds with their unchristian friends and neighbors. And it's weakened the stomach of the church. And so it's produced in us uh, confusion or just a lack of knowledge or a real insecurity. It's like the church, many streams of the church are just embarrassed about these good and glorious truths because of the weak teaching of many streams of the church. Second uh, pastoral reflection, we must not miss the critical importance of this area of doctrine. I want to be careful here, but I do think there's a connection. Is that mistakes in this particular area of doctrine, oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes are an on-ramp to greater theological drift and decay. So the mainline denominations, like Methodism, uh, Episcopalianism, the, the one half of the Presbyterian USA, not the Presbyterian PSA, PCA and other faithful Presbyterian denominations, but Presbyterian USA, those churches, several generations ago, began to give way on this particular doctrine of the differences between men and women in the church, and the same logic that, oh, that was cultural, that was then, those differences don't apply now, is similar to the logic that some of these liberal denominations are now applying to the issue of human sexuality. And so the same logic that caused the rope to be slippery, to cause them to let go and stop holding the rope on these truths, is now being applied, well, what Paul was talking about, the particular type of homosexuality that Paul was talking about in the first century is a different type of homosexuality that we're dealing with today. It was, it was exploitive homosexuality, not the type we're dealing with today. So Paul's admonitions against homosexuality in the New Testament don't apply today. It's the same logic. And these mainline denominations are losing their grip on just the idea of what it means to be man and woman and the same faulty Logic is being applied to sexuality that was being applied to the roles of men and women. Do you see that? I think it's really, really important. The only exception that I can see in the church at, broad, at large is Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism, by and large, believes that women uh, can serve as pastors and elders. But generally, Pentecostalism has enough emphasis on holiness and conservatism that they haven't given way on this yet. But I'm telling you, if you don't have a good doctrine of the differences between men and women, it's going to be very difficult to hold on to a good doctrine of what it means to, to, to human sexuality and even gender. And so I, I think this is really, really important. Uh, I'm not saying that every Methodist and every Episcopalian and every liberal Presbyterian believes this, in his, in, in, but I'm just saying it, it, most of them have slid that way. See, we should be aware... We should be beware. We should beware. What am I saying? Oh yeah, we should. We should be. Should we be aware? We should beware. Oh, I guess it's the same thing. It's a. Con, it's a conjunction. It's the same word. We should beware. Who wrote this? Oh, I did. We should beware. We should beware. This is important. I think this is 
more closer to sort of our stream of adopting the world's logic and assumptions about ministry men and women. Uh, an example is Rick Warren, a uh, famous pastor from Saddleback Community Church uh, in, in Orange County, California. Recently, his church was removed from the Southern Baptist Convention because they, uh, against the Baptist faith and message, uh, which has been around for a, a long, long time, and they have recently changed, and they have been ordaining women as pastors, uh, which is a clear violation of the Baptist faith and message. And Rick Warren, in his later years, has, has seemingly changed his view and is now getting very antagonistic uh, towards people in his denomination or network of churches that he, he supposedly agreed with for 40 or 50 years of his ministry. And one of his critiques about complementary complementarianism complementarian doctrine about how women should not be pastors, one of his critiques recently was that that sidelines thousands of women in our churches from ministry. And I just want to say, well, wait a minute. That is a very wrong understanding. It just, it, to me, it, 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 it flags, it illuminates, uh, I think, a misunderstanding of, of what it means to be a woman and what ministry is. Women are not in any way less than because they shouldn't serve as pastors. I think that is unintentionally exalting the office of pastor as some sort of super-Christian, and it's not the case. It's just that God has two genders and different roles for them, and this one particular office is supposed to be held by men, but the fact that women shouldn't do that doesn't lessen women in any way. In fact, to feel like women are only valid if they can do everything that men does is actually a, a, a subjugation of what it means to be a woman, in my view. And the other thing it does is it just, it, it exalts to, I think, an unhealthy uh, pedestal, the office of pastor. It's important. But it's, it's, it's not really, it, there's so much more to be done in the church. And so when we buy into this logic that if a woman can't do everything a man can do, somehow she's less than, we have bought into the logic of the world that says that women and men have no difference in their design. That's a faulty logic. It's a faulty step. And quite frankly, it's disappointing that mature Christians uh, don't see that. And then fourth, uh, a concern about voices on the left and right. I'm concerned, obviously, about progressive Christianity. Um, it's becoming more and more pervasive. you got Christians who aren't discipled. They watch TikTok. They listen to their favorite YouTuber who are pervasive, and they can put all those catchy little videos, and they, they, they speak very em empathetically, and they're really, they're, they're cute and all that kind of stuff, but oftentimes they don't, they couldn't find their way out of a wet paper sack theologically, and they're, but they're persuasive, so I'm concerned about voices on the left, but I also have a pastoral concern about voices, uh, non-Christian voices on the right. Jordan Peterson and Matt Walsh are two examples that come to mind. I think they probably have a lot of good things to say about manhood. Uh, but they don't, I don't think that they are believers. Matt Walsh is, is confessing as a Catholic, but I have a whole host of problems with the Catholic understanding of the gospel, which is not the topic of tonight, we can talk about later. But I, I don't know that these men are regenerate, and I don't think they offer gospel hope and gospel direction in their messages. And I think, again, because a lot of younger men just sit in front of a, a screen all day and they take in this stuff, there may be good principles to learn from them, but it's like one tick off. It's, it's, not, it's not 
it's not the spirit of Christ. It's the spirit of, of, of anti-rage in this world against the junk of this world, which I get. But I, I don't think, I think there's better things to learn from. The Bible is sufficient. And I think that if you're a man, especially a young man, you, you shouldn't drink from these guys exclusively. I think you'd do much better to learn from the older men in your church who may not be as smart, don't have degrees, don't have YouTube channels, but they're paying their bills, they're loving their wives, and they're plodding along, and they're faithful guys. And by the way, if you ask me, I did see Matt Walsh's documentary on what is a woman, and I thought it was excellent. I thought it was excellent. I thought it was great. But I don't think that the church should be drinking from that exclusively as an understanding of what it means to be human and woman. Yeah, re- watch it and be informed by it, but don't, don't, don't get mesmerized by these guys because they don't offer gospel hope. Three, reflections on Crosspoint's practice and culture. I'm sorry I'm going too long. Doggone it. I wanted to be shorter. Okay, looking back on how I have led in this area, and I'm speaking for myself. I said this last week. I'm not necessarily speaking for all the elders. I'm just reflecting on my own imperfect leadership in the past 18 years of this church. Um, the older I get, uh, I notice in my heart a strange combination, and this may seem sort of um, contradictory, but it's like the things that I really believe I'm getting more certain in, but I'm also looking and saying, yeah, but I'm also like more humble about my execution of my certainty. And I just realize, ah, maybe I messed that up. Tensions that I felt through the years as a pastor, specifically in these areas of women's role and men's role in the church. As many of you know, 20 years ago or so, as I was getting ready to plant this church, I was coming out of a very a-theological, meaning not very theological, uh, background in, a, in the Pentecostal world. I'm not saying all Pentecostals are a-theological. I'm saying the one, the stream that I was in was, and I was uh, certainly in an egalitarian culture. I was going to seminary. I was embracing these new truths. I was seeing them. And like a lot of young guys, I probably overreacted in anger against the things that the culture of the church that I was in wasn't seeing, and I felt like I was missing. And so in my immaturity, kind of like a pendulum swing, kind of like a cage stage Calvinist, I I sort of overreacted. And I think um, I became maybe a little bit, um, maybe too complementarian early on in the life of the church. And then combined with that, and I, and I say this like with a lot of humility, and I want to be, um, but I also think you deserve to hear my heart and my reflections and honesty. Uh, one of the problems that I saw in our city, and I still see it to this day to some degree, that I think I reacted at times and still need to work through my reactions to in our city, is that I think that much of the c- Christian culture in Columbus is inordinately influenced by upper-class influential people. And I think that oftentimes those upper-class influential people are really generous businessmen who are good-hearted guys, but they're not really serious about knowing truth. They just, it's kind of a, it's kind of a cultural Christianity. And many of their wives are wonderful, fruitful people who love the Lord, but I think there's kind of, kind of been a culture of women's Bible studies and women's seriousness spirituality in our city, which is a wonderful thing. I mean, who's against that? But I think it's been a reaction to the, to the passivity of much of the influential Christianity in our city. And so what has developed has been kind of a, a city that's, I think, sort of led by, uh, at least culturally, movers and shakers in our city, a lot of women. And I think it trickles into the culture of our churches. 
And I don't think that's a good thing, really. I mean, I think it's wonderful for women to be influential, but not in the absence of men who are really digging in and leading well. Does that make sense? Can I say that? Okay. Are you going to show up again Sunday? I hope you will. (laughs) And so in a desire to be faithful, I think I probably have not always struck the right balance. I think at times I've kind of overcompensated. And then thinking, I want to see men raised up. I want to see guys sort of taking their place and, and, you know, being educated in a military environment and kind of being in the infantry world. All those things are mixing into my life. And I am just admitting I have not always led well in this area or often unintentionally I have just not emphasized the right things. I think it's like pastoring, especially planning a church is like whack-a-mole. You you know, this comes up and you're trying to, I want to handle this and then stuff's over there and you just, yeah, yeah, we got to, people come up and you thought about this. Yes, I've thought about that, but I see these four or five fires over here that I'm trying to put out. That's not an excuse. It's just to say that like I'm, I'm a human and I haven't, I haven't necessarily put the right emphasis on all these things. So letter B here, final in questions. Things I want to cultivate. Um, I, I want to encourage men. I, I want to see more men in our church aspire to leadership. Uh, I think we should have more men who are, trying to, who, who are aspiring to be an elder and disciple others. And then finally, I want to encourage women. I want to do a better job as a pastor in encouraging women. Um, I think at times my emphasis has been more uh, and I don't apologize for this, but my emphasis has been on trying to encourage and, and exhort men. And I think uh, I could spend a little bit more pastoral uh, uh, um, time with the other leaders and elders. And I'm not trying to single myself out as the important. Here, when I say me, this is a self-reflection. I'm not trying to exalt myself and my importance in the church. I'm just, I'm just sort of self-assessing right now, if you, will, if you will grant me that, is that one of the things I think I can do, and just me personally, along with the other elders, is lead better in thinking about ways that we can encourage and cultivate uh, women in ministry in our church. Two ways that I think might be helpful in the near future of our church would be um, be, be thinking about uh, calling and uh, women deacons in our church. I think we have many women who are already serving in deaconesses roles, and I think we should ratify that and actually call them that. And then I think also just even participation in services, things like reading uh, the call to worship, which we've had women do a few times, even just this last Sunday, Edith read in between songs, and and she just read scripture, but also praying. Um, I think those are wonderful ways for women to uh, participate in um, in the services, uh, and it, I don't think that that violates First Timothy chapter 2 in any way. And a lot of times it's not that I think where I have missed at least an emphasis on that is just a desire to try and encourage men and get men to see themselves and get them up and kind of stir something up in men, maybe to the detriment of encouraging the sisters. And if I have erred on the spectrum on that, certainly I own that, and, and I think that we should do better. I think in general, Crosspoint is a church that, that, that for the whole— Uh, puts these things together well. And I think there's a good culture and spirit here. And I think the men are a wonderful group of men who are leading well. And I think the women are just, I think think on the whole, uh, if I, like the critiques of the culture of Crosspoint are far more towards kind of how I have led. And again, I'm not trying to uh, make my leadership as exalted to more importance than other things in life of the church, but it's just a self-critique. When I look at the whole of Crosspoint, I see lots of men and women doing really wonderful things in all these areas and living in it out appropriately. And I just look at myself and say, hey, I, I probably need to do, uh, in, in ways, a better job of bringing these things to, to sort of bear in the life of the church. Amen? All right. Okay. That's all I got to say. Questions?
And when I say questions, I mean questions, not stump speeches. Questions, questions, questions. Anybody got questions? Comments, hey Brad, thoughts? Oh, yeah. Can I ask a question from back here in the tech booth? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I was wondering, where, where, where? Sorry. Uh, Lord, here am I, Lord. <laughs> Send me. The, vo <laughs> the voice from the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the ahead, topic of, on the topic of women becoming deacons, yeah. referencing 1 Timothy 3. Yeah. Uh, verse 12 would seem to be a qualification reflecting back on only men can be deacon, deacons. Seeing it says, let their be husbands of one wife, ruin their children and their households. Um, yeah, I think, I don't think that's the case. I think, uh, so you're talking about First Timothy 3, if you could put that back up on the screen. Thank you, Sarah Ann. Um, I think if you're, uh, I think that what's going on there, and I've thought about that, that's a great question, Andy. So Andy's point is, um, you know, verse 11, let's just assume that verse 11 is, is saying their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers. Then why is he, it seems like kind of herky-jerky, why is he going back to what seems to be the obvious implication in verse 12 that those are de men deacons, obviously, because they're the husband of one wife. I think what's going on there is that he is basically uh, saying similarly to what he said to the male elders that the issue of promiscuity uh, was certainly more of an issue amongst men than women, and so I think he's just returning back to this admonition of male deacons. I think that's the best explanation. But I admit that that point that you bring up, which is a good one, Andy, is often used against the position that men sh uh, women can be deacons. And I would say that if verse 11... Um, was a tighter uh, articulation of wives. If we were more clear that verse 11 was wives, I think, you, I think we could definitely say that verse 12 is just, uh, just, he's just continuing on. And if we didn't have Romans chapter 16, and why, where I think Phoebe is certainly called deacons, then I think, I think yeah, only men should serve as deacons. On that point, though, yeah. it looks like there's three other places in 1 Timothy where that same word for wives is used. And it's translated as wives. Would it be? Yeah, and that's, well, they're making a contextual determination. I have to look at each one of those sort of individually. But I think given the fact that verse 11 says likewise, uh, which signals in verse 8 that there's some similarity, that there's a shift in role. Likewise, a new role is being presented. 11, likewise, a new role is being presented. And then, quite frankly, I think Phoebe, Phoebe is, is, um, is decisive for me in Romans 16. Now, let me just say that I think, given the fact that I think that women should serve as deacons, I think that deacons, let's talk about the role of deacons. Deacons is not an authoritative, it's a serving role, okay? If you came from a church that didn't have elders, maybe a traditional Southern Baptist church or an old school Pentecostal church, and you have pastors and a deacon board, in that setting, women should not be deacons because that deacon board is wrongly, is actually an elder board that's wrongly being called deacons. Do you understand that? Okay. So I, I didn't, I don't think I explained this well enough, is that implicit in this idea of women being deacons is a correct understanding of the deacon role, which is not a role of authority or teaching. It's a role of leading, servant, uh, 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 caring for physical, logistical needs of the church. And even within that, I think that there are appropriate and inappropriate ways for women to serve as deacons. So I wouldn't have a woman 
be a deacon over men and ushers and security. I think women could serve as deaconesses of hospitality or care for widows or over child care or some other administrative area where they're not um, in a sort of authoritative position in a, in, in, over men in a particular sort of way. Does that make sense? But great question, Andy. Yeah. Any other? Yeah, Jeremy. Now, Jeremy, it, the hour's late. No? Okay. So mine is not necessarily a question, but okay. more... If you could speak to, when we hear submission, and we yeah. think you, we've yeah. been talking about the roles of men and women in the church, mm -hmm. typically women in the church are to submit to their husbands, and yeah. men are to be elders or deacons, you know, different things. I think one thing, humility here, yeah. uh, if we could, if you could address um, the role of men submitting to elders. Yeah. Because oftentimes you hear this men speaking like the wife must yeah. submit to me as the husband. And I'm thinking, okay, yeah. even if you've got yeah. some That's a great point. Yeah. Uh, inconsistent theology yeah. or whatever, yes. Okay, well, so then do you submit to elders even if they maybe you think their theology is inconsistent? Yes. And so, I don't know, just encouragement. Oh, brother. How I, do you speak to yeah, that? Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned that. That is a great point, Jeremy. The Christian life is one of submission for all of us, okay? And so the point Jeremy's making is, is that we shouldn't see and hear the word submissive, submission as merely applying to women in marriage or in the life of the church. Yeah, that's one application of it, but it applies to men in the church, to other men in the church, and it applies to the elders, to the church, so we submit to one another. I submit to the other elders. And so, yes, because if you, if you and this is, this is a stream that's happening in the church today, because there are a lot of uh, men who are angry at the feminization and the liberalization of our church and our culture theologically, and I share their frustration, but I think there's an overreach where they're basically saying, I'm the man, and, and this is the way it's going to be, and you're supposed to submit to me, and, and that's the final authority. A man is not the king of the castle. That castle exists in the church, and we all together submit to one another. The, the church submits to the elders. Men in the church submit to the elders. Everybody submits to the elders. The elders submit to the church. There's a mutual, exclusive kind of dance here. It's like a ballroom dance where the elders lead, but we know when to dip and we follow each other. Right. Right, right. So, so the, uh, Jeremy's point that if you didn't hear him is, is it's, it's inconsistent to say the women have to submit to the word that says submit to your husbands, but then those husbands also need to submit to the word which says submit to the authority of the local church. And the local church, again, is also a qualified authority because local churches can be wrong. Okay? Local churches can be wrong. So that's a great point, Jeremy. Thank you for saying that. We all submit to one another on varying degree, one degree or another. Ed, did you have a, okay. Uh, Jim, Jim, money. Were you, were you going to say something, Ed? Oh, oh. Yeah, fifth commandment. Yeah, yeah. On is, your, on is part of the problem on this issue and, and a lot of the other issues of the world creeping into the church, Brad, I think we forget sometimes maybe the world hates us. Yeah. The world hates Jesus. They yeah. hate the gospel. Yeah. They killed him for what he said, that he was the son of God. Yes. And they hate us. Yes. And why would we want that in our church? Why would, yeah. we, why would we want to invite that in our church? Yeah. 
Amen. And and then a, a, a backup to the, to that is you know what Jeremy uh, said is you know submitting to one another, outdoing one another in honor, what that would look like in our yeah. church, not just between husbands and wives, but but to each other. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Yeah, amen, brother. Well said. Well said. It's Lindsay. Oh, Lindsay. Is, is this your last? Yeah. This is your, oh, Lindsay Sad. and Jeff are moving to someplace called Riverside, California, yeah. which is where I was born. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna, we're going to miss you. Thank you. Um, he's what? Oh. Okay, my question is, how do you feel about women teaching in um, a co-ed Bible study or community group setting? If, like, the husband and wife is the leader of the community group, do you yeah. feel like the woman might have the ability to teach if maybe the husband can't be there that particular week? Or yeah, that's a good question. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a great question, Lindsay. Um, no, I would be a little uncomfortable with that. Um, I think that, that uh, there's, some, there's, some, there's some flexibility here. I think there's some application. Depends on the posture. I think if a, a community group is led by a husband and wife, I don't want, I would hate it if the culture is, is that the wife, before she spoke, had to look over to her husband in that kind of submissive way, you know, she feels like, oh, she's going to get scolded. No, I hate that. That's terrible. That's, who wants that? I think a woman should be able to speak freely, and her husband's kind of leading, and there should be this joyful facilitation of discussion. Um, but I think that there should be some clarity as to kind of who's in charge, and I think a man should be in charge in that situation. Uh, but I, I, I don't want there to ever be a situation in the culture of Crosspoint where women um, sort of have, you know, you know when you can kind of feel that Stepford, that just that, that, that when women, you just, you can feel it when a woman just, there's just this sense that she's scared to say something, and if she says something wrong, she's going to get the evil eye from her husband. That's, that's, a, that's a bad way to live. That's a bad way to live. And so I want to put both of those things together. I don't think um, women should exercise if her husband, I think you should just have a male lead. But I also don't want what I just said to somehow make a woman feel like she shouldn't speak out and just say, hey, this is what I think, you know, uh, you know what I'm saying? Does that, that help, Lindsay? Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else have any questions, comments? Yes. Remind me of your name. It's Cora. Cora. Good to see you, Cora. Nice. And I just wanted to come up here and uh, give this church some fuel for, like, what God thinks about um, women as far as, like, usurping roles of authority yeah. in the church. Um, I was just, like, when you mentioned um, in today's culture, it's kind of, like, becoming more predominant to see women mm -hmm. in pastoral places and things like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people are like, oh, well, I believe culturally that it's different nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, this is what God said to the people of Israel when he also told them that he would make women to rule over them. Mm. He says in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water, the mighty man and the man of war the judge and the prophet and the prudent and the ancient, the captain of 50 and the honorable, honorable man and the counselor and the cunning artificer and the eloquent orator. He says, I will give children to be their princess, pr princes and I shall make babes to rule over them. And then later on referencing that again 
in verse 12. He says, as for my people, children are their oppressors, and women will rule over them. Mm-hmm. Oh, my people, they will lead thee, cause thee to err, and destroy the way of thy paths. Yeah. So, as far as, like, maybe when you're having a conversation with someone who's, like, in a different church who believes differently than you, you can always reference the word of God to <laughs> back up your beliefs. Yeah. Also, I found yeah. it Amen. extremely interesting that um, in First Timothy, when he says women, you know, that same word was used for wives as referencing the deacon's wives, uh-huh. but it's always apparently used in the context of yeah. specifically wives. So I just thought that was interesting yeah. that even though it's, put on the paper differently it's still the same word yeah, yeah. amen thank you that's a wonderful text isaiah 3 praise god all right anybody else have anything anything all right well if there's nothing else publicly that anybody wants to say i'll stick around and answer any questions you may have thank you for your patience i hope this has been helpful um and uh, I hope you hear my heart as a pastor. And again, I always feel this um, kind of weirdness when I talk sort of singularly about my leadership. Um, I, I hope you understand my heart is not to sort of exalt my place or role, but it's merely just to self-reflect and take responsibility for uh, my own leadership. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for these brothers and sisters here tonight. Uh, Lord, we want to be a place where we want to continue. I think this is true of us, but we want to stir it up more. We want to be a place where men lay down their lives and lead and love and protect women and where men in this church exert their leadership in a way that causes women to grow and to flourish and to uh, feel freedom rather than to feel subjugation or scolding. Lord, I pray that this would be a place where men are not scolded or berated, but that they are encouraged and where women are not objectified um, or even treated in in such sort of stereotypical ways that uh, the picture of femininity femininity is, is overly sort of weakened, but that we would see that what it means to be a woman, biblically, it requires great strength and courage, fortitude and toughness. Let this church be a strange combination of strong and humble men and women who are adorned beautifully but are fierce and fearless like Sarah. What a beautiful picture. And as Jeremy's pointed out, Lord, let us all realize that the Christian life is one of submission. Submission is a beautiful thing that we all must partake in. So help us achieve a a, a gospel, spirit-filled balance in these things for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.